Thank you. Thanks, Andrew, so much. Morning, all. Morning. Lovely to see you in here, out there. Very good to gather. And God is very clever, I think, at um, understatement, at just knowing us, seeing us, meeting us at our point of need. So conscious always on these gatherings. Lots of us here, lots out there, and wherever we're at, all in different sorts of places. But God is, God knows, God sees, and it's so good, even though we do a collective thing. There's also an individual thing going on, and people in all those places, as Andrew's sensitively described. I think Chris, by the way, Chris Hughes and the family would love us to know the Thanksgiving will be on, uh, for Steve's life, will be on Wednesday, the 11th of August at uh, 1.30, and down in St. Paul's, because... They don't have the beauty and joy of scaffolding, limiting their space down there. Uh, we'll we'll publicise that as well. I don't know about you, there's probably, you're probably like me. There's not many things that I miss from the early, early period of when that thing called coronavirus hit us, whenever that was, 16 months ago or something, um, and, and when all of those words became, became unwelcome words, came into our vocabulary that we never knew before, like lockdown and you know, self isolation, or as my mother called it, self-distancing, which I thought was rather sweet, um, and, and quarantine and Zoom and you know, all that sort of stuff. But I did, what I did enjoy was people's creativity uh, online in those early days, just putting up funny stuff, things to make us chuckle, just taking the situation and, and adding humor to it. And um, thanks, Cheryl, if you just show the first one of those. This was, this was one that I particularly um, sort of relish as we're getting into the whole sort of Zoom world. Um, and this message this morning is the last one on a series of four that we've had on called, we're calling Feasts of Grace, um, following on from a hospitality kind of a series last month. And we've been looking at some stories in the Bible where Jesus is present in the context of a meal and simply saying, Holy Spirit, what do you want to teach us from this story? What are you, what are you showing us? You're always wanting to speak. The scripture isn't static in that sense. There's new things to show us. And so we're, this is the last of those. And we're going to... Um, focus on the thing that is called the Last Supper, hence the, the funny picture. And, and that's a story that is told in four books of the New, of the New Testament, in uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, in Luke 7. Paul speaks quite about, uh, a lot about it in uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, his letter to the Corinthian church. Uh, but we're going to start in Matthew's version. I'll refer to some of those other ones. Matthew's version, chapter 26, and a few verses towards the end of that chapter. They're on the screen, but if you want to find them, it's verse 17 and then 26 to 30. So let me read this. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? And Jesus answers that question and gives them some instructions and they find the upper room and they prepare things for the evening uh, Passover meal. While they were eating, verse 26, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Familiar uh, story, I'm guessing, to, to many, most, all perhaps, um, I don't, I don't know what your WhatsApp groups are like. Uh, we have a pretty active family WhatsApp group. They tell me the kids worked out the other day that we, we average about 60 messages together on our family WhatsApp group each day, which seems like quite a lot. And embarrassing to say, quite a lot of them re revolve around food. Um, there's a lot of pictures that seem to appear, and a lot of them are about meals, and look at this lovely meal that we're enjoying, or this thing that we've eaten, or whatever. And most of them are entirely forgettable, like most meals are, and that's normal. But just sometimes, th there's a meal to remember, isn't there? There's something that, you, that was very special, we shared 
said this week, something where it went, triggered a memory of a journey to Southeast Asia many years ago. And at the foot of the, um, what are they called in Kuala Lumpur? The Patronus Towers. There's a lovely restaurant. We had a real treat, special meal, and somebody shared that. And yes, oh, I remember that. That was, that was wonderful. The story today, of course, is focused on a meal to remember. If you want a title for the, for the talk, it would be that. We call it communion, typically, in, in, in our sort of context. Other traditions call it other things, variety of things. The Eucharist, Holy Communion, we sometimes add the Holy in front of it. Breaking of bread, Andrew's referred to that in a Catholic tradition. Mass, the Lord's Supper, and so on. But of course, all of it, historically, is based around this older Jewish tradition of the Passover meal. Uh, this uh, drama, if you like, a bit of visual drama that Jesus takes hold of and, and sort of uh, reconfigures, reworks in a rather dramatic fashion into a meal for all of his disciples, past, present, uh, and future. A meal to remember. So some obvious questions to ask. We're simply going to kind of work our, our way through this in a fairly um, uh, logical kind of way. Well, why? What's the significance of this? Why is it so significant? Perhaps that's ground that you've visited in the past and it's... Uh, top of mind, very fresh for you. Perhaps you haven't been there for a while, haven't really thought about this thing that we do called communion and, uh, and, and looked into it a little bit more. Well, we're, we're looking at that a bit today, just in the next 20 minutes or so, addressing these questions. But I'm confident that this isn't just about information. Whenever we share God's word, whenever we read it for ourselves, it's rarely, if ever, just because God wants us to know some more information. That his word is like a seed uh, in many ways. It's described like that. Jesus describes it like that. What does a seed contain? It contains potential for life and change and growth and increase. So as the seed of God's word lands, let's receive it. Yes, as information. It's important for us to know stuff. But actually, more importantly, that, that we would then be transformed as our minds get changed, as we get a deeper understanding, as we encounter God even in his, in his word. And this meal, then these accounts, this meal to remember, it encourages us, I think, to look in, in a few different directions. And I'm going to dwell on the first one a little bit more and then uh, mention the other ones a little bit more briefly. There's four of them. First one, look back, look back, fairly obvious, look back. Do this in remembrance of me, he says. There's the text. Good to keep it in front of you. Look back to remember what? Well, communion is a celebration of the Passover meal, and it seems that Jesus was celebrating it uh, perhaps a day early on the Thursday. Typically, it would have been on the, the Friday. According to John's gospel, when the, the, the Passover lambs uh, were killed uh, the next day on the Friday, just at the time when Jesus himself on Good Friday was crucified. So the lamb central to this uh, Passover festival, we could say that Jesus was celebrating the Jewish Passover, but this time with himself, if you like, as, as the Passover lamb. And clearly, frustratingly, like so many bits in the Bible, we don't have the full record of the whole conversation that night. Wouldn't it be great to know everything that they spoke about, everything that Jesus said in that and other contexts? We don't get all of that. So we have to use our imaginations. So using our imaginations, let's, let's imagine the host of the feast, and, uh, and that would have been in this case Jesus, the spiritual father of the group, summarizing, if you like, and he would say something like, we were in slavery to Pharaoh, we were in slavery as the people of God to the Egyptians, we were held captive by ruthless slave owners, but God our Father rescued us in this beautiful act from captivity. And then he'd tell the story of Moses and he'd tell the story of the plagues and the, and the Red Sea and the angel of death passing over, hence the Passover, passing over the houses of the people of God that had been daubed with the blood of the sacrificial lamb and the exodus from Egypt and the miraculous crossing of the sea and the journey towards the promised land. And God came to our rescue would be the central message, wouldn't it? Showed his power, showed his love, brought judgment on our enemies, brought freedom to us. That's the story in a nutshell that gets this beautiful retelling 
the remembering. And then there's this twist, if you like, in our imaginations, this twist as, as Jesus, as if Jesus were saying this. I'm not saying he did say this, but as if he were saying this. But now, beloved children, I need to tell you, you're still slaves. We're all still slaves. We're all still held in captivity and actually to a more powerful master than even Pharaoh in Egypt. That thing that we call sin, that thing that we call self-centeredness, that thing that, that we're in the, in the grips of that, enable, that, that requires us to live our own way with ourselves as king, our own crown on our heads and not God. And God the Father has another rescue plan. It's a once-for-all rescue plan. And they're thinking, what are you talking about, Jesus? What are you talking about? A new exodus, a new, a new sort of um, uh, liberation from, uh, from the Roman oppression? What's going on here? And then Jesus, the host of the meal, the spiritual father of the meal, would take bread. And in the Passover meal, I understand that there would be three uh, breads, matzos, I believe is the right term. Um, Mike here will correct us all on the, on the detail later. But I, I believe they're called matzos, like a pit of bread. There's three of them, and, and, the, and the father would take the, the, the first one. And the middle one would be taken broken in half, and half of it would be wrapped up in a cloth and then hidden away to be brought out later and held up. And I know a guy called Richard, uh, a man of Jewish origin, culturally Jewish, didn't particularly have an active faith in, in, in any kind of a God. But he, his testimony was that he was at a dinner hosted by a Jewish believer in Jesus one time, quite a lo lo long number of years ago. And it was this bit of drama that changed his entire life. Because the, the host of the meal held up these three uh, matzos, these three breads, and said, do you know what these three uh, represent? Not Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob, as some of the, the rabbis in some traditions say, but the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, he said. And he said, remember, we Jews, we take this uh, middle one, and we break it, and we hide it in the cloth, and we later bring it out and hold it up. And what does that mean? And the rabbis actually, even to this day, I understand, have many different interpretations of exactly what that means. But here is the meaning for us, said this Jewish Christian host. He said, as Paul said on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, he took the middle, the middle matzo, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. This body of Jesus that was then broken the next day, broken by abuse, broken by the hurl of insults, broken by a crown of thorns on his head, broken by the lashings of the Roman soldiers, broken brutally by the nails that, were, that pinned him to um, a wooden cross, the violence involved. That, that broken body was wrapped in a cloth, was placed in a hidden place, hidden away. And then three days later, that stone in front of the tomb was rolled away. And when the disciples went to look, they found that the wrapped up body wasn't there and all they found was the cloth. His body was raised from dead. And all of this was said by this Christian host and Richard, this man that I, he's not a friend, but I do know him. And his testimony was, as he heard those words, this is my body broken for you, he just broke. The spirit of God just hit him in the chest. He just broke. And all of his kind of background that he brought to this and this fresh understanding and the spirit just enlightened him and he felt he said he felt I felt this terrible and beautiful revelation that it's all true I've he wrote later I've lived my life away from God I've been my own boss actually I've been a slave to my own sin and self-centeredness but God loves me enough to send his son to rescue me through his broken body and his shed blood he is the Passover lamb of God and there and then he received, in simple faith, the beautiful gift of salvation, being saved, being rescued, being forgiven, being set free. 
and beginning a new relationship in life with the risen Jesus. The power of drama. He went on to write in a book that one of the things, furthermore, that was so key for him was this little word for in that sentence. This is my body which is given for you. That little word, just, he said it t- takes us to the, to the depths of the whole thing. For, we're used to the idea of something replacing something, something for something else, something in the place of something else. And he began to just get to grips with this extraordinary divine exchange that the cross, the the blood of Jesus, the the broken body of Jesus represents. Him taking upon himself all the rubbish, all the the stuff, all the the things that clog up our, our hearts and our lives, taking all of that on him, doing it for us in our place and all the things that belong to him that are in his account, if you like, his holiness, his goodness, his purity, all of that being placed in our account. That's the divine exchange on the cross, friends. I caught a story from Afghanistan very recently, a couple of months ago in the paper. I don't know if you heard about it. I'll I'll just summarize it briefly. It's a longer story. Painful, excruciating story of a farmer in Afghanistan with 10 children, and his farm was really suffering badly uh, to the point where he he couldn't feed his family. Starvation was setting in, and he was just desperate, completely desperate. So he began selling stuff, selling everything that he could. He sold first his animals he sold, and then I think he sold uh, some of the, the farm machinery that he had. Then he began selling, he got down to cooking utensils. Then it got as bad as him having to pull wooden beams out of his house in order to raise a few coins in order to buy food, in order to feed his family and keep them from dying of starvation. And then eventually the worst came to the absolute worst. And can you imagine this? He ended up taking two of his 10 children, I think a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old, down to the market and he sold them. And there was a reporter, the person who wrote the art of the journalist, caught up with this guy and went down to the, to the town. And, and as they were in the town, these two lads came by on a donkey under their new owner. owner. And they were able to embrace and hug and, and, and so on. But he, he, he said, I can't stay. I've got, I've got to do this for my master. My master's not kind. He, I've got to go and collect water, whatever. And there was this terrible kind of understanding that he'd done the worst thing that he could possibly do in a way. He'd, 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 He'd sold his son. And of course, it caught me to some extent that the father would sell away all that was most precious to him so that others could live a a life worth living. Just something of what's going on here for us. That we could experience the presence, the love of the father, his affection, his favor, and so on. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he would have taken the cup as well. And again, in the Passover tradition, I understand that there are always four cups of wine, actually. And they represent different things. And and the second one is called the cup of judgment. And the third is the cup of redemption. There's a bit of discussion. Which cup is it that Jesus took? I wonder if it might have been both, actually. Because there's something of both going on here, isn't there? that he held up in that moment. He was about to drink the cup of judgment to the very last drop Jesus was drinking, that, as, as it were, the judgment of God on sin so that you and I could be bought, bought at a price and then redeemed into freedom, the cup of, of redemption. So freed from the things that wrap us up, freed from the shame that we know so well, freed free from, from the cycle of guilt when we don't match up, free from the things that hold us back and entangle us, says Hebrews and so on, free from trauma, free from rejection. It's a process, of course it is, but it was all paid for there. 
do this in remembrance of me. Look back. It's primarily what we're doing as we, as we take the meal, as we, this meal to remember. A bit more briefly, look up. Do this in remembrance of me, says Jesus, not just what I've done, but who I am. Do it in remembrance of me. That I'm the, he's the, now the lamb upon the throne. This is more than just going to a memorial stone like you might go to a cemetery and look at a grave with a name on it. It's much more than, than just that. It's much more than just calling to mind him. It's The Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10, is this not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks, a participation in the blood of Christ. I think we might have that verse maybe on the screen. It's not, and it's not the bread that we break, a participation in the body of Christ. Paul chooses his words carefully here. Participation, there's something much richer than just recalling a name, recalling an event. There's a participation going on. That's why this meal, one of the reasons why we call this meal communion. There's a collective sense of we're engaging in something more than just memory. He's engaging us. He's encountering us here. He's meeting us. He's connecting with us and us with him. We're participating in a mysterious way in the body of Christ, in the blood of Christ, the broken body and the spilt blood, the living Christ present in this meal. And I, I, it's beyond my pay grade theologically to go too far into the mystery. I'd be suspicious of anybody who could go too far into, into what is mystery here. And I'm certainly not, not offering a, a, a Roman Catholic literal perspective of, of the body of Christ literally becoming uh, bread any more than I think. I pointed a photo of my dad and say, this is my dad. It's a photo of my dad, but we know what we, we mean by that. There's something for me of that. But personally, I believe there's something more than just symbolic. That's what I'm trying to say. Christian tradition varies on this. We know that. Somebody wrote this. Listen, Christ is always present when two or three are gathered in his name. He's there in their midst. But just as like a, like a parent may be present when his small children are, parent, are, are playing, that parent offers, as it were, more of his presence to the child when they pick up the son or daughter, hug them and kiss them. When you take communion by faith, it's as if the Lord is embracing you and kissing you even more present. I love that sense of deeper engagement, the sense of participation. That being the case, by the way, it's quite a good case for taking communion quite frequently. Who doesn't want to be embraced, connected with? Jesus doesn't offer too much detail. The Bible doesn't say very much in Scripture. It's why Christians have argued for 2,000 years about how often and how and, and all of that about communion. But I'd, I'd say there's a good case for frequently. So let's not cut ourselves off from a rich source of, of spiritual nourishment, meeting with Jesus. But anyway, the, the, the direction to look, clearly we're looking up. We're looking at him. I'm going to take the next two together. Look in, look around. This is a shared meal. I'm not suggesting for a minute that we can't take communion by ourselves. Of course we can. There's huge blessing and benefit in, in that, breaking bread, taking wine. Many traditions encourage that. Uh, but the biblical context here is the shared meal part of an intentional getting together for fellowship. And again, I'm not going into too many of the, the arguments around that. Our friend Nigel Scotland wrote quite a good book on it um, a year or two back. If you know Nigel, part of this congregation for many, many years. I forget what the book's called, but it's a good one, and Mike will give you more. But Paul is writing again to the Corinthians, explaining some stuff, and he's set, he, the context he's writing to is that they've got, a, got themselves into a bit of a mess here in the, in the, in the collection, the, the sense of being together. There's division here. There's, there's a sort of hierarchy thing going on. The rich are looking down on the poor, and, and some people are being marginalized and that kind of thing. And, and, and Paul warns in verse 27, he says, so whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup, you need to do in, uh, drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. So everybody ought to examine themselves before they eat the, the bread and drink from the cup. Quite important looking in and looking around in this moment. I think you get the picture. Examine yourself. Look in, he's saying. 
and then look around and recognize that actually it's not such an individual thing. It's a, it's a, a together thing. It's a family of God thing together. I'm not sure he's saying examine yourself in every respect and you know, find, find all the, the kind of lurking sin. But in the context here, it's what, what, are we holding anything against anybody? Let the Holy Spirit just uh, take a look inside to see what attitudes we may be holding, especially uh, towards others in our church family, in the larger community of God's people. Are we remembering? This is a shared experience. Sure, it's personal, but it's not private. So I ask myself, is there anybody I'm at odds with in the church? Is there anybody that I'm not committed to, to forgiving and loving, even if they've hurt me or disappointed me or, or they don't like me or they don't love me back? So if I'm comfortable with divisions, if I'm sort of comfortable with a bit of resentment lingering, if I'm comfortable that there's, there's discord and enmity in the body, if I'm comfortable with that, if I'm comfortable that there's, uh, there's sort of discrimination going on but I'm, I'm not going to go there, then I think Paul says, no, we'd, then we'd be participating in an unworthy manner. Examine ourselves, examine our, our attitudes. Look in, look around. Is there somebody that I just need to, to release? Is there something I just need to fix in my heart before God? Forgiveness in the end, of course, is a transaction between us and God. It's not between us and another person. It's releasing that hurt and that person to, to God. Look around, look in. Last one, look forward. Did you catch that? I'm going to read this bit from Luke's version, although Matthew had it too. But Luke says it like this. Jesus says, I've eagerly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it, the Passover, finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And so after taking the cup, he gave thanks and he said, take this, divide it among you. I tell you, I will not drink it again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. I find this so interesting. I won't dwell on it too much. But what's going on here? When we pray, God, your kingdom come, we're praying actually in a couple of different dimensions. We are praying about a now experience, a personal experience, an experience of people and situations around us. We are saying, God, you're the king, so let your domain, that's the dom bit, the king's domain, let your rule come, let your, your will be done. We want to see your heaven's values worked out on earth. We want to see breakthrough. We want it in bodies and mindsets and in our own hearts, in our families, our groups, our schools, and so on. We're saying that's what we, when we pray, uh, God's kingdom come. His power is available. We want to see it. We are, we're asked to pray for it. Your kingdom come. Of course, we're praying all of that and we pray it regularly regularly here but when Jesus says from now on I, I shan't drink it uh, drink this fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes he's talking about something a different dimension isn't he he's not talking just about a present reality something that we're praying for to be present here and now he's also talking about a future reality a future event and in that sense when I'm praying God's kingdom come he's we're praying hasten the day when you God complete your mission when you rule over the whole earth unopposed. And we're supposed to pray like this, friends. The final words of the Bible, come, Lord Jesus. We are encouraged to pray for that. And that's part of praying your kingdom come. Complete your mission, God. Wrap up history, God. Finish your purposes. And what are those purposes? Here's Revelation 5 verse 9, just as an example. The angels sing the song and they say, you're worthy to take the scroll to open its seals because you were slain, Lamb of God, Passover sacrificial Lamb of God, your blood... Through your blood, you purchase for God people from every tribe and language and nation. So when the kingdom finally comes and is established on earth, God's family from every tribe, nation will be gathered. Thy kingdom come is a prayer then for the completion of that worldwide mission of God. And so Jesus, the Passover lamb, gets killed so that that can happen. 
So the Passover, in that sense, it's not just a, just a past event. That's why Jesus says it will be fulfilled. It's happened, it's past, but it will be completely fulfilled one day when God has gathered his family. I find it so moving then, just to finish. In all that's going on, and I've done a bit of a whistle-stop tour through what is a massive central part of our whole journey as the people of God. So moving there, the night before he dies, the night before he gets pinned to that cross, seeing for himself the joy set before him, as it says in Hebrews, of the coming kingdom, of, uh, of telling his disciples that what he's signifying tonight in this meal, what he's accomplishing tomorrow on that brutal cross, will one day be completely fulfilled in the kingdom. A kingdom of people from every tribe, every age, every stage, every nation, on earth who will bow the knee to Jesus and confess him as Lord. And he says, I'm not going to eat until that day comes. But you eat. You eat. You eat and you drink to remember me, to look back at this, at all of this that's happening. To look up at me, to look in at your own hearts, to look around at the the nature of your relationships and then to look forward and to keep your hopes strong and to empower yourselves for this mission which is now your mission that you'd go into the world and that you'd make disciples for me, disciples of me, Jesus. Who would make disciples? Who would make disciples? Who would make disciples? Until I come again. Amen. Let's stand together.